Hello, and thank you for joining us on Giving Voice to Depression. I'm Bridget. And I'm Terry. More than 350 million people worldwide suffer from depression, but you do not have to have it yourself to be affected by it. Its prevalence pretty much guarantees that someone you care about battles its darkness. This podcast tries to shine some light into that darkness. We're not experts and we're not therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and are committed to encouraging healthy, healing conversations about mental illness. The episodes in this season's podcast are made possible by a generous grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. We are solely responsible for podcast content. Hi, Terry. Hello, Bridget. Suicide continues to be in the headlines with two recent high-profile celebrity deaths Mm -hmm. and two major reports released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The first, which we summarized last episode, that suicide rates are on the rise in the United States. And most recently, that suicide rates among U.S. women have climbed steadily and peaked among women aged 45 to 64, representing a 60% increase over the past decade. Hmm. And we're both in that age range. And while the light this kind of attention shines on the importance of mental health is important and has the potential to lead to change, a lot of the discussion, particularly on social media, is still uninformed at best and straight up wrong, mean-spirited, and stigma-reinforcing near the other end of the spectrum. It certainly is. We had planned on having Mark Hennick share his story today of how he progressed from being chronically suicidal to now managing his mental health challenges and speaking publicly to let others know that there is help. Instead, we've asked him to comment on some of the many things being said in the media these days and in uninformed discussions for years. Mm -hmm. Everything from you can't stop someone who wants to kill themselves to They're just doing it for attention. We'll share his remarkable and inspiring personal story next week. So we made a list of seven things we commonly hear about suicide and asked Mark to comment on each of them, sharing what he's learned in his experience. If you're wondering why you should care what he thinks, you might be interested to know his TED Talk, Why We Choose Suicide, is one of the most watched in the world with nearly 5 million views. So we begin with the belief that people who are suicidal want to die. It's probably the most common myth that I hear uh, that people really want to die. Uh, and usually because the person themselves believe that. The person themselves argue that, that they, that they want to die, that they need to die. So it's really important to know that not everyone who suffers from depression will have suicidal thoughts. And not everyone who has suicidal thoughts will act on them. Yet it's also true, according to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, that more than 90% of people who kill themselves have a mental disorder, and depression is the most common. That's important because that has a way of limiting your view. Um, Not only limiting your view, it also uh, has all kinds of other impacts on you. It makes you tired. It makes you irritable. It it can lead to other health problems. So really what the person doesn't want to do is, is deal with that kind of existential dread anymore, that pain anymore, that uh, difficulty that comes with that struggle. Uh, It's not necessarily that they want to die. It's that they don't want to live that way, I think. A second and very common comment after a suicide is that it was a selfish act. Uh, I see where it comes from that you're not thinking or people think that you're not thinking of uh, the impact that it has on those around you. You're only thinking of yourself. Well, I would push back on that 
certainly based in my own experience. I, I can't speak to everybody's, but I was thinking about my family when I was standing on the edge of the bridge and, and every other time before that. I was thinking about how it would help them, how it would be the best thing for them uh, if they didn't have to deal with me anymore, the trouble that was me. So I thought I was doing them a favor. And really, in some ways, it, and it's a, a skewed view of things, but that's the definition of a mental illness, practically. Um, I thought that I was doing something good for them. That's the opposite of selfish. So I, I think that people um, who, who believe that just don't take the time to get inside the head of somebody who's in that place. We've also heard that described as, in the moment, what is irrational from the outside can feel totally rational from the inside. And we wondered if suicide loss survivors might be at least slightly comforted to know that the intention of the person who took his or her life may well have been to do something for them versus to them, or if that just makes it worse. Well, you know, so guilt is by far the most common emotion that I hear from suicide loss survivors, that that they wish they could have done something. Uh, and it's usually parents or spouses, because the two most common groups of completed suicides are um, adolescents, usually boys, uh, and middle-aged men, middle-aged men being the most common. Um, so people always think, I wish I had have noticed something, or what did I miss, or how did I contribute? I actually turn that around a bit on the person too uh, because what we notice is that the people closest to the ones are struggling are usually the least able to see what's going on uh, and that's because they love them so much it's not because they're not paying attention it's because they're so close to them what parent on earth would ever want to create a scenario in their mind where their little boy dies or where their their, their partner that they've uh, been with every single night and that they've married and shared so many great experiences with that they'd someday end their own life. We don't want to think about these things because, and deeply psychological, it's not just a choice that we don't want to think about them, because it's painful uh, and because we that's just never even entering into the equation. So we block that out. We limit that out as a, as a possibility. That's just how our mind works, to avoid pain in that way. So, you know, I, I think that while, yes, there is more we can do to help people learn how to notice the signs and symptoms, uh, often it's the people who are closest up to us that, that psychologically um, are, are the least prepared to notice. I thought that was a really interesting point and one I have not heard. Uh, we will move on now to the belief that suicides are often or usually occur out of the blue or with no warning at all. Mark says... Yeah, so, I mean, the data doesn't support this. Uh, in the large majority of suicides, there is some kind of uh, sign that it might happen. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that it's going to be super obvious. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, somebody's going to come out and say uh, that they're going to kill themselves, although that happens a lot, too. Uh, they could be that the person has a diagnosis, for example, of depression or anxiety uh, or some other chronic uh, physical health problem. They could be uh, withdrawing more. Uh, so there's lots of ways in which people uh, give off signs uh, that they might potentially be suicidal uh, or struggling. Uh, and I think the only way we can fully decipher those if we see is if we see them in the broader context of that person's life, uh, and if it's a if it's a change from their baseline or if there's a theme here happening, um, it, it's not always so easy uh, to see that somebody might be at risk. Of course, but there's almost always uh, uh, signs. So some warning signs are missed because they're subtle or we do not know or recognize them. Other times, it's because we weren't intended to see them. 
people with mental health problems and illnesses, especially if they're suicidal, learn pretty early on to hide what they're going through as well because they're, they learn that it makes people uncomfortable, that it might isolate them further, and that's the last thing that they want is to be isolated even more. So it's this dual factor, I think, of people not recognizing the subtle, subtle signs and symptoms uh, and often the active suppression of signs on the, on the behalf of the person who's struggling. Related to the without warning belief is the idea that suicide is an impulsive act. Mark says there's some research to support that, but it's complicated. However, I, I wouldn't say that it just comes out of nowhere, that it's just an impulse that, that has no basis. Almost always there's something else going on. It's, it's generating from somewhere, whether it be depression or uh, anxiety or schizophrenia or, or something else going on. Uh, however, it, it is a cognitive pathway that people build, which means that it's something that they think about a lot. They plan it a lot in their head. And even if they don't realize they're planning, it might be an unconscious planning process. And then there's usually something that triggers it. Something seemingly mundane happens. And then for whatever reason, instead of saying, oh, that person broke up with me, you know, I'll work with that. That happens to everybody. They shoot down this other highway instead. And they go down this other way that says, no, I need to end my life because this is the worst thing in the world. And that moment is really what we're looking at is there's something going on here. There's something psychologically, uh, potentially neurologically uh, that we need to address. Um, so that impulse, I think, is a key factor. It is there. It does exist. Uh, but it's not like it's an impulse in isolation from context. The context is important. There is no ambiguity about the next common idea. It's just plain wrong. The idea that someone who has made and survived previous attempts isn't serious about dying and doesn't need to be worried about. One of the most common predictors of completed suicide are prior attempts. Uh, and when people do have that impulse, when they're building that cognitive pathway in their head towards suicide, sometimes that takes uh, in, often increasingly um, serious su suicide attempts. I mean, all, all attempts are serious, but you know, there's, there's a, a degree to which they become more and more dangerous. And that certainly happened in my experience, you know, uh, until I'm, you know, standing on the edge of, uh, on an inch and a half of concrete at midnight alone um, about to jump. So I think that there's a process here of people figuring it out as they go. Um, so if there are, especially if there's multiple attempts, uh, that means that we have to really take a closer look at, at what's going on here and try to figure out, do a better job of figuring out what's happening for that person. The sixth misconception we asked Mark to address is another one that really offends us. The comment that someone who attempts suicide, particularly multiple times, or talks about wanting to, is just trying to get attention. I run into this all the time, and I'm of the view that if that person is so in need of attention, so let's entertain that for a minute that you're right. If that person's so in need of attention that they're willing to die to get it, just give them attention. What's the, like? Is that the worst thing? Is, is your attention the most valuable thing in the world that you that you're unwilling to give it, even to the point of somebody else dying? So I, I think that that's just a completely baseless uh, stigma, and actually it makes the person saying it look like a really terrible person. I think so, too, because if you scream fire, right. you're also trying to get attention because you could die under, you know, either situation. Exactly, and that's what suicidality is, I think, at its core, is a fire alarm. That it's somebody, okay, yeah, sure, they want attention. That because there's something going on here, they're giving off all the signs. And then that's the same person who, when they go to hospital or when they eventually do, that everybody whispers, oh, nobody saw it coming. 
they were screaming at you that it was coming and nobody was hearing it because they just wanted attention. You know, so I, I think that that's the least defensible uh, stigmatizing myth out there that people who die just, and I, I put the emphasis on the italics on the just, are doing it for attention. The last common comment we presented to Mark is you can't stop people from killing themselves. You, you definitely can. Uh, and often uh, we know that suicide interventions, uh, often conversation-based, uh, do work. You can de-escalate the person. You don't even have to convince them that life is worth living. Just get them to a place of ambiguity where they have some doubt, some crack in that um, absolute conviction and certainty that they need to die. You just need some ambiguity, reasonable doubt. Uh, and that's often enough to keep them alive. Ultimately, it's a it's a manner of building connection with that person, even if that's not an option for whatever reason, and often, unfortunately, it's not. Um, being able to bring them to the emergency room to hospitalize them should be a that should be a targeted acute intervention because it's strictly to keep them safe. Uh, but that's always an option that's out there too. Um, now, ideally, if that happens, people are going to get the other help on board pretty soon too. If for any reason. You still believe you can't intercede to help someone considering suicide? We implore you to do some research, take a mental health first aid course, or reach out to us directly, and we'll send you links to some of our episodes that address the value of a caring connection and non-judgmental listening. Absolutely. So while we had Mark on the line, we had to ask him how and why, when so many people believe that depression and suicide are taboo subjects that no one really wants to talk or hear about, how his YouTube video on suicide amassed more than 5 million views? Uh, because it's an unmet need of our society. And, and what we know in that scarcity context, if you really need something, if a society, if an individual is craving uh, for a conversation that goes deeper than just diagnostic labels and, oh, hey, how are you kind of conversation, uh, then you're going to look for that and you're going to be drawn into that. People really, really want to talk about hard things like mental illness and suicide and struggle. The problem is that nobody's asking. Nobody's opening the door for them. When you do that, when you open that door up, uh, people come flooding through. Having tackled common conceptions and misconceptions, we asked Mark for one final comment about something he wrote that really resonated with both of us. He says, pushing yourself beyond what you think you can do is scary. Do it anyway. If it doesn't work, do it again and do it harder. If it still doesn't work, do it differently. If it still doesn't work, do something else. There is always something else. Well, I always remind people that if, if they're struggling themselves, there's no reason to suffer in silence. Uh, that if somebody is hearing this for the first time, there's always somebody who's hearing it for the first time. Reach out for help. You know, if the people that you reach out to aren't willing or interested or all that helpful, reach out to somebody else. You can make yourself happier and, and healthier uh, just by finding what it is you need, figuring out what you're lacking in your life. Uh, if that's a medical intervention, fine. But there's always ways out of these dark boxes that we build ourselves into. So there's there's no reason to live like this, uh, that you can have a better life. And, and, and I think people need to know that um, they have more power than they think to build that. Mm, nice line to end on. People need to know they have more power than they think to build a better life. Mm -hmm. And don't suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mark, for your insights and your encouragement to open the door up for more meaningful conversations. I think in today's world, we're all aching for that. 
Absolutely. And the next week we will hear Mark's specific story about his life and how he got to the place where he is and to have the understandings that he has now that he was tragically lacking in his childhood. Mm-hmm. Until next week, Terry. Bye. Bye, Bridge. We hope that these shared stories bring out a little more understanding or help people articulate their experiences of depression a little more clearly or more freely. Thanks to all, everyone who's digging deep and finding the words and finding the courage to give voice to depression. You can find all the other episodes, some resources, and a blog on our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And you can find the podcast most of the other places that you find podcasts. Just Google it, as our mom says. (laughs) (laughs) And please remember, if you're hurting, speak up. If someone else is hurting, listen up.